Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying our episodes of Creogs Over Coffee. So Nick and I are trying to conduct a survey to figure out exactly who has been listening to the podcast and also to get a sense of what people enjoy from the podcast and what else they're using to learn. We're hoping to use these results to inform us as well as other creators in the new sphere of medical education with podcasts and other forms of media to bring you better resources in the future and hopefully start this revolution in MedEd. So if you'd like to help us out, go ahead and go onto the website for the survey. We'll also post it in the bottom of our episode information as well as on the website. It is https colon forward slash forward slash redcap.link slash Creogs over coffee. Thanks for your help and participation. So Nick, now that I'm starting MFM fellowship, I'm realizing that I'm very quickly losing my GYN knowledge. I know, right? We did this episode on vulvar disease and I was like, oh my God, vulvar disease. I have already lost all of my knowledge of that. Where did you find any information about GYN, Faye? So thankfully, the OBG project has all of their up-to-date information on both OB and GYN information um, that you can access online at any point. Fortunately, I've kept up with that subscription-only OBG first, which allows me to bookmark articles and summaries into my own personal library so I can find those things again that I need for studying for the boards. So if you are a fourth-year resident, you can sign up for one year for OBG first absolutely free, and trust me, it is very, very much worth it. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and see how you too can get a free year of OBG first as a chief resident. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, over Coffee. Coffee. Today's episode is going to be an interesting one. We're going to talk about the surgical abdomen during pregnancy. So, Faye, what are our objectives today? So, today we are going to talk about recognizing a surgical abdomen during pregnancy. So, how is this different from outside of pregnancy? We're going to also talk about imaging during pregnancy with someone that you suspect an acute abdomen in, what is okay, what is not, and finally, timing of surgery for common causes of acute abdomen in pregnancy. So Nick, start us off. What exactly is a surgical or acute abdomen? So the pure hardline definition of this is a serious acute intra-abdominal condition that's accompanied by pain, tenderness, muscular rigidity, for which emergency surgery should be contemplated. I think the easy definition is basically an abdomen that you examine it and look at it and say, yeah, you probably need surgery now. Um, and I think that at least for us now, having been through residency, we've seen this a couple times, right? You think yes. about like your ruptured ectopic or hemorrhagic cyst, like peritoneal belly, and that's the type of picture you want. This can be complicated though in pregnancy um, because there are lots of physiologic and anatomic changes in pregnancy that can change the presentation of what we would usually associate with an acute abdomen. In essence, it's just kind of tricky. Um, Faye, what are some of these changes? So the biggest one that I think we have to talk about and everyone probably already knows is that we have this enlarging uterus. So the uterus is normally a pelvic organ. However, it becomes an intra-abdominal organ 
um, at around 12 weeks. That's when the uterus grows to the point where it is above that pelvic brim. The uterus can grow from 70 grams when you're not pregnant to over 1,000 grams and hold up to five liters. So clearly it can become quite a large organ as we know. It is going to displace other abdominal organs, mostly the viscera. Um, On our website, we are going to have a nice picture that we took from um, a study in the Journal of Women's Health from 2019 from Zachariah et al. um, that shows kind of all of the organs that we should be considering in each of the quadrants of the abdomen in pregnancy. So while these are not necessarily completely different from someone who is not pregnant, we should be considering that um, some of these organs may be displaced. So for example, while the appendix may still be in that right lower quadrant in advanced pregnancy, it can be pushed up to the right upper quadrant. The second thing that I wanted to talk about that may change with pregnancy is a more relaxed and stretched out abdominal wall. And this can mask a sign of an an acute abdomen, which is guarding. Some women may not have the amount of guarding that you would expect if there's a belly full of blood, for example, or if there are other, um, if there's something irritating the peritoneum. The uterus also can compress the ureters depending on how big the uterus is. And so on imaging, this can look like hydronephrosis and mimic urolithiasis and may make us suspect some type of renal dysfunction or even make us be suspicious for things like pyelonephritis when it's not actually there. There are also a lot of other physiologic changes that I think we've talked about in our one of our first episodes on physiologic changes of pregnancy. And remember, we blame everything on progesterone. Mm-hmm. So those big things include GI changes, which is delayed emptying of the stomach, relaxed lower esophageal sphincter, and increased nausea, vomiting, bloating, and GERD symptoms. And so that can certainly confuse us um, by making us think that some one may have uh, something like a, an acute cholecystitis um, or even appendicitis when they don't. And also there is decreased GI transit. So slower motility because of relaxed GI smooth muscles, again, due to progesterone, and that can cause constipation or even obstipation that can lead to such discomfort that women may look like they have a surgical abdomen when they actually don't have one. And finally, there are some changes in Uh, the hematologic perspective for pregnant people. So we know that there can be some leukocytosis, which can look like someone has an infection, even though they don't. All right, Nick, so now that we've talked about all the different things that can confuse us in terms of diagnosing acute abdomen in pregnancy, let's talk about how we actually can recognize someone who has an acute abdomen when they're pregnant. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about a lot of these changes, Faye, but Again, if someone comes in with those acute abdominal signs, you should still treat them and go with the triaging as if they have an acute abdomen. So those signs, again, abdominal rigidity, rebounds, tenderness, guarding. And in pregnancy, there's a lot of causes of acute abdomen. You know, the non-obstetric causes are important to still recognize because those are still always there. You know, your appendicitis, your cholecystitis, um, your ruptured aneurysm. Saw one of those recently, which was exciting. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) But on the obstetric and gynecologic side too, again, pregnancy opens up a whole different differential diagnosis that we 
probably didn't have before. Um, and it depends too on whether it's early pregnancy or later pregnancy. Now, early pregnancy, we already talked about ectopic pregnancy, but miscarriages, ovarian torsions, hemorrhagic cysts, and late pregnancy, you can think about your sort of hypertension spectrum in terms of abruption and acute fatty liver and HELP syndrome. But then there's also ruptured uteri, fallopian tube torsion, which I think you saw once, Faye. <laughs> I did. It was very strange. <laughs> Um, and then uterine torsion is also a thing that can happen too to people, um, which is, again, we're talking about really uncommon things and sort of getting off track a bit. But again, broad differential diagnosis for a suspected acute abdomen in pregnancy that just is more complicated by pregnancy. Um, Faye, let's talk through some scenarios and some clinical pearls for more common causes of acute abdomen. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the two that kind of jump to mind are appendicitis and cholecystitis, right? Because they're common when people aren't pregnant. And so, you know, it can still be common when they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So let's first talk about appendicitis. So classically, we're taught, um, you know, probably first day of medical school, the appendix is displaced um, in pregnancy. But right lower quadrant pain is still actually the most common symptom in a pregnant woman who has appendicitis. Fever might be present sometimes in some patients, but again, we're still looking for that right lower quadrant pain. Your physical exam is still going to be the number one thing that you want to rely on. Most people who have appendicitis, even though they're pregnant, are still going to have that right lower quadrant tenderness. In terms of imaging, ultrasound has a sensitivity of 67 to 100% depending on what studies you look at and a specificity of 83 to 96% in pregnancy. Because of the lack of radiation and also because this is a test that is readily available, it is considered first line. CT has a sensitivity of about 86% and a specificity of 97% and it's usually not used as much because of radiation. MRI also has high sensitivity and specificity and is usually the second line imaging if ultrasound is inconclusive. And the treatment is surgery. In terms of cholecystitis, um, Murphy's sign, which we learn for cholecystitis, is still going to be typically positive. And ultrasound is again going to be the imaging of choice with sensitivity greater than 95%. And in terms of treatment, patients who have cholecystitis should be admitted and they should be made NPO. The difference here is that cholecystitis can actually be treated conservatively depending on the clinical scenario. So some patients can be made NPO and given antibiotics. This is only available for patients who do not have complicated cholecystitis. So if there's any signs of sepsis, of perforation, or disease progression on antibiotics, they should get immediate surgery. So what exactly should we be doing for patients who have cholecystitis um, that is uncomplicated? You admit them, you give them antibiotics, and their symptoms may actually abate within 7 to 10 days of starting non-operative treatment. However, there is a higher risk of recurrence or serious complication. And in the third trimester, non-operative medical management with antibiotics and fluid therapy should be tried first simply because it's harder to do these types of surgeries when the uterus is so large um, and you're not able to go in laparoscopically as well. In first and second trimester, these patients are good surgical candidates and should undergo cholecystectomy if they are, um, if they are eligible candidates. So I know that we talked a little bit about imaging before, Nick, we had a whole episode on it, but let's discuss um, imaging again in pregnancy because I think 
I feel like the number one consult that I get as an MFM fellow is this patient is pregnant. Can I get a CT scan? Yeah. So I think, right, people are afraid to give radiation to an unborn fetus. Um, and with good reason. Again, we discussed, as you mentioned in our previous episode, that there are risks to remember. Um, Ultrasounds, though, generally is the first line for acute abdomen. Um, again, it's really good at looking at the visceral structures in the abdomen. It has high sensitivity and specificity for most applications. But the efficacy of ultrasound can decline after 32 weeks because of technical difficulties due to that enlarging uterus. Um, soft tissues then can be looked at with MRI, um, and that's generally going to be the next line thing that folks use before ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation, though, when necessary, is necessary. Um, the risk of radiation exposure to that developing fetus depends on the dose of radiation and the gestational age at which the exposure occurs. If ionizing radiation is used within the first two weeks of conception, like three to four weeks pregnant, and you may or may not even know that you're pregnant, um, that's when fetal mortality is most significant. And so, again, will result in that all or none effect of either a miscarriage or nothing happening. Vulnerable periods for teratogenicity is during the organ development period, usually up to about 12 weeks of gestation. And the risk of ionizing radiation-induced fetal harm um, beyond this period is pretty negligible for most studies. Again, we measure this in gray or milligray. Um, 50 milligray or less is generally the threshold for negligible amounts of harm to the fetus. Malformation increases only slightly with doses at greater than 150 milligram. To kind of put some actual studies on these measurements here, the usual dose of a CT of the abdomen and pelvis is about 25 milligray. And this can actually be reduced even further to about 13 milligray with automated exposure control facilities and modern CT scanners. So again, even though the risk is there, and we talk about it, and you should counsel your patients about the risks that do exist if you need a CT scan, get a CT scan. All right, Faye, let's talk about surgery now. Um, I'm not a general surgeon, so I hope I'm not taking the gallbladder out, um, but people will take the gallbladder out. Yes, somebody will. <laughs> so multiple studies have shown that laparoscopic surgery is less invasive and is feasible and safe in select pregnant patients, just like how there are patients who are not good candidates for laparoscopic surgery, there are also going to be pregnant patients that are not going to be good candidates for laparoscopic surgery. If you can time the surgery, the best time is around second try or very, very early third try. Pregnancy itself does not increase postoperative morbidity in pregnant women compared to non-pregnant women. And timing due to decreased exposure of the fetus to anesthetic agents during organogenesis should be preferred if you can. So again, in that second trimester, once organogenesis has ended. This will de also decrease your risk of a spontaneous abortion if you can time your surgery for second or third trimester. But again, if someone is coming in in their first trimester, they have a raging appendicitis, they're septic, the best thing for them is for you to go ahead and take that appendix out. Um, saving mom's life is the most important thing in this case. The other reason we try to time surgery for around second trimester is that the uterus is not so big that it is hard to work around. So you can imagine a woman coming in at 36 weeks pregnant, doing a laparoscopic appendectomy in her case may not be very feasible simply because the abdomen is so big, you kind of have to think about where are you going to put your instruments and your ports. 
Finally, in terms of post-operative care, if there is a viable fetus, there should be monitoring of the fetal heart rate and uterine contractions both preoperatively and postoperatively to ensure that fetal status um, is reassuring. If non-viable, there should be DOP tones done, so checking a fetal heart rate before and then again after surgery. Usual care is recommended after any type of laparoscopic surgery after pregnancy, so making sure that the pregnant woman is comfortable after her surgery, giving her Tylenol and potentially even a small dose of opiates to go home with if she needs that to recover. Um, However, we should avoid using NSAIDs if possible after 32 weeks due to a risk of premature closure of the fetal ductus arteriosus. All right, Faye. Well, I think that about does it for the surgical abdomen in pregnancy. Why don't we try to summarize quickly? All right. So first we talked about the definition of a surgical or an acute abdomen. Basically, this is an abdomen where you should consider emergent surgery due to something within the abdomen that is causing peritoneal signs, so blood, infection, things like that. Anatomic and physiologic changes in pregnancy can complicate diagnosis and treatment of an acute abdomen. Some of those changes include the enlarging uterus itself that can displace other abdominal organs, particularly later in gestation, relaxed and stretched abdominal wall that can mask gardening, the compression of the ureters that may mimic renal pathologies when there is not a renal pathology present, and then physiologic changes such as GI changes and hematologic changes that, again, may complicate your diagnosis. All of the signs that indicate that someone has an acute abdomen when they are not pregnant should still be used as exam findings in someone who does have an acute abdomen in pregnancy. So we're still looking for things like abdominal rigidity, rebound, tenderness, guarding. And we should also consider um, all of the obstetric and gynecologic causes of acute abdomen as well. So other than your non-obstetric indications like appendicitis, cholecystitis, um, ruptured aneurysm, etc., we should also be thinking about things like a ruptured ectopic, molar pregnancy, ovarian torsion, hemorrhagic cyst, and if later in pregnancy, thinking about things like a placental abruption, ruptured uterus, etc. Some quick clinical pearls for those more common causes of acute abdomen in pregnancy, such as appendicitis or cholecystitis. With an appy, again, right lower quadrant pain is still the most common symptom despite the usual displacement of the appendix. Ultrasound is your first line test with a sensitivity of 67 to 100% and specificity of 83 to 96%. MRI is generally the second line test. And again, if you suspect or confirm an appy, the treatment is surgery. Cholecystitis, the Murphy sign is still positive typically, and ultrasound is the investigation of choice with an excellent sensitivity still at greater than 95%. Patients may be acceptable candidates for conservative therapy of cholecystitis where you admit them, make them NPO, and give appropriate antibiotics. Patients in the first and second trimester should undergo surgery if they're good surgical candidates. In a third trimester, non-operative management with antibiotics and fluids should be tried to allow for delay of a cholecystectomy until the postpartum period. And certainly, if the coli is complicated, you should go to surgery because you want to remove the source of infection. We then talked a little bit about imaging in pregnancy, and of course, we should be judicious in our use of radiating imaging while someone is pregnant. However, we did talk about that if you feel that um, imaging is necessary, then we should go ahead and perform that imaging. We talked about the risk of radiation exposure at different times of pregnancy. So again, in that three to four week range of being pregnant, we have that all or none effect from radiation. The most vulnerable period for teratogenicity is usually up to 12 weeks um, during organ development. 
treatment. However, um, the risk of ionizing radiation-induced fetal harm is negligible under 50 milligrays. And risk of malformation really starts to increase very, very slightly with doses greater than 100 milligrays. And to put some perspective on that, usual CT abdomen pelvises carries about 25 milligrays of ionizing radiation. Finally, to talk about surgery itself, Multiple studies show that laparoscopic surgery is less invasive and is feasible and safe in pregnant patients. And if you can choose to time the surgery, the best time period is the second trimester or very early third trimester, where again, the timing is going to decrease the exposure of the fetus to anesthetic agents that may predispose to malformations or spontaneous abortion. Um, and the uterus is not so big that it's hard to work around. Postoperatively, if it's a viable fetus, there should be monitoring of the heart rate and uterine activity, and if not viable, Doptone should be obtained pre- and post-procedure. Usual care postoperatively should be given, other than the thought process that you should avoid NSAIDs after 32 weeks if possible to, again, avoid the risk of premature closure of the fetal ductus arteriosus. All right, so I think that does it. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Facebook or Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. You can send us some love. We'll send you some swag. We post show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question, feedback, or a correction, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 